You're listening to highlights from the creative process interview with author and music producer Lee Jaffe. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. You're a complete artist, but focusing first on your book, Basquiat Jaffe, Crossroads. I've never seen images of Basquiat like that. Just tell us how that relationship began. Well, I had a teacher in college, an art professor, who was very much responsible for me understanding what art was and could be and allowed me to become an artist, really. His name was Ithilos Ganga, and we became lifelong friends and collaborators early on from when I was in school. And he was having an exhibition at LACMA. This is in 1983, LA County Museum of Art. I was living in New York at the time, and I flew out to go to his opening. And Jean-Michel was there. He had had a show in New York in a gallery. And I had recently seen that and was really impressed by it. And he was the only black person at this opening. (laughs) And somebody said, that's Jean-Michel Basquiat. And I went over and we started talking. And he was very much a musicologist. And he knew everything about Jamaican music. And when I introduced myself, work with Bob Marley and the Whalers, and in particular with Peter Tosh and producing his first solo album, Legalize It. And we connected on the music. At what age were you both at that time? Because you sense a real evolution and you traveled to so many countries together. What did you discover about yourself in that process? What was he discovering about himself? What did you only discover looking back at those images years later? Well, I feel lucky that I had a camera with me because in those days, it was all very new to me. We went to Japan and Thailand and Switzerland, these places I had never been to. I had been to a bunch of places in Europe. I spent a year living in Paris. I was in a show in Germany, but I'd never been to Zurich. So it was all very exciting and new. And I was excited to meet him. I felt that when I first met Bob Marley, I was really impressed by his powerful presence and humility. And I felt the same kind of thing when I met Jean-Michel. I had seen his exhibition and I felt an affinity with his paintings and his poetry. I didn't know that he was Samo and that he had been painting on the walls and the streets in Lower Manhattan. But I was very moved by the Samo stuff. It was using the whole city as this visual poetry. Everybody in the art world and music world and Rio wanted to know me. So it was like this introduction. And that's how I met Elio Wojcicka. And he invited me to come and stay at his house. He had a big house, Jardim Botanico on the hill underneath uh, the Christ and overlooking Lagoa or out to the Atlantic. It was a spectacular spot. And it was kind of like the anti-factory. I mean, I never went to the factory. I was too scared to go to the factory because I felt like all these people were just like getting exploited by Andy. Like everything was about Andy. And I knew there was really talented people there, poets, 
filmmakers and whatever, but everything was about Andy. It's all about Andy and ego and star system. It's the um, culmination of Durer signing his name. And then into the 20th century, it's Picasso. I mean, why is Hannah Hock not more important than Picasso? Well, she is. She's a lot more important than Picasso. If you look at art now. You know, I think that so many people were pulled into Andy Warhol's orbit. I mean, I only know in second, third, fourth, fifth hand. So I think it's very fascinating. But that you said no, that you saw that there was like a darkness or an exploitativeness to people. Yeah, Elio's house was exactly the opposite. So on the one hand, he was this magnet for all these incredible people. Like he had given the name to this cultural movement, Tropicalia. So in 1967, he had this installation, this multimedia installation at Museum of Modern Art in Rio called Tropicalia, and then Caetano Veloso produced this album called Tropicalia, which was culturally and musically a seminal record that Jard um, Macalette produced. And of course, it was very political. And Elio, I mean, you could really view Elio as the beginning of installation art because that piece had so much impact. And well, of course, it's been shown over the last, especially over the last 15, 20 years. But how important is that? Elio was this inclusive person. Like when you spoke to Elio, you knew he was like much smarter than you. Like he was the most brilliant person. He had read every bit of Western philosophy. But he, he elevated you. He made you feel that you were a lot smarter than you ever thought you were. And it was just inspiring to be around him which is why so many people were drawn to him. It, it was alive, immediate, it was visceral. And that experience of arriving in Kingston and hearing the music coming out of this shack. I mean, I didn't know absolutely that slaves lived there or that this was, you know, Cologne. I mean, I, I was just arriving in Jamaica. This was all new. I didn't know anything about it. Although I had seen this movie, The Harder They Come, this Jamaican movie that Jamaican produced, Chris Blackwell, the Ireland Records founder produced it with Jamaican director, Perry Hensel. It was very much about colonialism and Rasta. This is my introduction to what the Rasta culture. So I had had a little bit of a inauguration into that from seeing that movie, but still arriving and hearing this it was one thing to hear it on a cassette, which was overpowering. I mean, when I first heard that cassette and the first song is Concrete Jungle, it was the first Whalers album, it was before Peter Tosh and Bunny left and they were just called The Whalers, not Bob Marley and The Whalers. And the first song was Concrete Jungle. The, the impact, the, the idea, Concrete Jungle, I mean, that's so crucial. It, goes, it starts off the no sun will shine in my day to day. The hot yellow moon won't come out to play in this here concrete jungle where the living is hardest. I was like, oh my God, this is like the most genius thing I ever heard. And it's like so relevant now, sadly. I mean, we're over 40 years from when I first heard that. 
almost, what are we, 50 years. It's crazy. That song can't be any less relevant now than it was then. Anyway, the biggest struggle is to be optimistic. Seeing the political situation in the United States now is it's so difficult to understand. And then yesterday, I saw this statistic that nearly 50% of the population in the United States has less than a third grade literacy. So on the one hand, now you understand what's going on, which you kind of felt in some way, but then to see it, it's very, very, I mean, I remember like in the early 2000s, I had so much hope for the internet that it was going to democratize the distribution or in particular music, especially when file sharing started, I said, oh, wow, this is great. At that time, there were five major record companies. And then they conspired with MTV to give MTV all this free, big production content. And you couldn't really sell a lot of records unless you were on MTV. And unless you had this big budget for this video. And then started, artists were exploited from the beginning of radio. So I thought, oh, wow, now we're going to have file sharing and we have the internet and there's going to be all this information. This is going to transform the world. We're going to have this incredible end of poverty. And instead we get fascism. We get Bolsonaro. And it's really scary. On the other hand, I'm listening to some of your podcasts, which I've been doing a lot recently. It's really um, pushed me to try to be uh, optimistic because the pessimism is very oppressive. It makes you not want to owe me anyway. It makes me not want to work. So I'm really pushing myself to be consciously optimistic. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thanks for listening.